Hello and welcome to the Knowledge of the College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have a really awesome interview to share with you all with a filmmaker named Juan Agustin Marquez. Juan is a four-time Emmy-winning filmmaker. Uh, he's most notable for the films 100,000 and The Last Colony, which we talked about quite a bit in this episode. Uh, he's working on a fiction film this year moving forward. And we talk a lot about just creativity and his process and how he got started in this field and what kind of decisions he made to get to where he's at now. So overall, I found it to be very entertaining, filled with lots of great content, lots of good nuggets to share and uh, little bits that you can apply to your own life. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Juan Agustin Marquez. Hey, Juan, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. So I came across your work a few years ago, and, and I love what you do. Would you mind sharing with the audience sort of uh, what some of your major accomplishments have been in the past, how you got into this field in general? Yeah, well, I'm a, I've been a film, I'm 37 years old right now. I've been a filmmaker since I was 16, and that's basically my been my lifelong passion to make movies and documentaries and i think for for your audience the the first thing that i did that was big and and caught people's attention was a documentary about dogs called 100,000 and that was like my first big my that was my first feature project you know after doing a bunch of like uh, i've done a lot of tourist videos and like home videos and music videos, but like 100,000 was my first feature documentary that got distribution and all that. So that was like my big start. And that was a grant that I won, that I applied for and I won called Doc TV, which is a grant that is uh, made for and by uh, Latin American countries and their uh, departments of uh, public funding for cinema. So 14 countries got together and created this fund called Doc TV, and they do a competition in all the 14 countries and all the winners in each uh, independent country get to do their own movie. And then they all have distribution across the 14 countries. So you have 14 teams of different producers from 14 Latin American countries. I'm talking about Mexico, Brazil, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, you know, humongous audiences. And they, they give us uh, all a grant, $70,000. They put us together. So we brainstorm our ideas of our different documentaries. And then they give us a year and the a year to make it and the distribution in the, all the 14 countries. So that was like a fantastic first experience of like right off the bat, like doing my first feature. Then I got distribution in 14 countries. 
How, was, how did you feel when you won the grant? Winning the grant was, uh, you know, that, I'm glad you asked me that because a lot of people ask me about the Emmys, like how did it feel to win the Emmy? And to tell the truth, the grant felt bigger. Like the grant felt, because the grant was really the first time somebody was giving me money to make a movie. Like the Emmy, when you win an Emmy, it's like, it's, it's like congratulations after making the movie. But after dreaming for such a long time as a child, it's like somebody someday is going to finance my work. That was like bigger. Like it felt bigger. Like I actually had tears in my eyes when we won the grant. When we won the Emmy, it was just exciting and, you know, champagne and all that. But the grant was like emotional. It was because it was kind of like validation, like, yeah, I'm not crazy. Like my ideas are what I was pitching was a, it's a good idea. Yeah. And when you, how long was it from when you first committed that you wanted your career to be in filmmaking? You mentioned it was a lifelong passionate dream. How long was it from when you committed, like, I'm going to do this full time to make money to when you won the grant? I was 16 when I started doing video and that was in high school. And then I went to film school and I graduated film school when I was 22. So right out of film school, I got a job in a, in a production company and I was a producer and I was making great work. Um, so I was in the industry, but not directing. So from 16, like I won the grant at 26 or 27. So I had done other works and I have, I have produced and I had, you know, I've been busy in the industry. But I've never actually been able to pitch my own thing and say, this is my project, this is my vision, and I'm going to direct it, and, and the money was going to, towards my vision. So from 16 to 27, basically, <laughs> 10 years, oh, wow. yeah, like 10, 11 years um, to make that happen. But in between, there's so many little projects that you have to do that, that no, you know, they never get to see the light of day, but they just build your career and your momentum and your you know, my experience. So it's, it was all part of the journey to, to end up there. And coincidentally, that was a documentary about dogs in Puerto Rico. And that was in 2010, 2009, we won the grant. 2010, we shot it. It was released in 2011. And now in 2019, after having done that documentary, I'm going to do another, my first fiction feature, or not a feature, but like a long short uh, with but with actors uh, about the same topic, so that documentary that we did that I did uh, that won the first Emmy it's called One Hundred Thousand. It's a documentary, you know, it's just real people telling the real stories. We're out there with the cameras, and now we're taking many of the lessons from the documentary and we're fictionalizing them and putting you know actors and characters and and acting dogs even to to make it very dramatic and but heartfelt and uplifting story about animals in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria set in after set, set in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria wow that's incredible that's awesome yeah I'm really I'm really excited about that because you know you come to Hollywood like I, I came to Hollywood in 2011 and you know it's been seven years and through all those seven years I've, I've gotten work but it's really hard you know I've, I have to do my own work and now for the, for the first time in those seven years, I actually get to transition to fiction, which is really my, was my main thing why I came to LA. So it kind of took me seven years to actually, after even winning four Emmys, it took me seven years to actually do my first fiction 
actors, film, you know, with with the finance, you know, with a production company, all that. So, you know. <laughs> well, congratulations! That's awesome. It takes forever. That's really fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It took forever to get to this point, and I, I, I I'm still like, are we really making this movie? Is this movie happening? <laughs> That's a good feeling. Uh, so, what, what motivated you to to make the one hundred thousand film in the first place? Too was it more of a you know you I saw you had a couple of dogs there before. Is it your passion for dogs? Is it about Puerto Rico? What what motivated you originally? Well, it's actually a very simple answer to that. My we are a production team. My wife, my her brother, my brother in law, and I. And I, to answer the question like completely, I've. I married my high school sweetheart. So I've been with my wife for 20 years and we've been, since I was 16, since I, w I wanted to make film, I started dating my future wife. So she's been the producer of everything that I've done, every short film, everything. And her brother who was, who we grew up together because like, again, she was my high school sweetheart. So he was like her kid brother. He became my DP. And now, you know, we're still a production team. Actually, he even designed this shirt. He's like a fantastic artist and all that. So when we decided to apply for the grant, the three of us sat down and my wife um, said, we have to do it about dogs. I think that's the most important thing. And so it was like a very quick decision. It was like, well, Mari wants to do a documentary about dogs. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's what's gonna happen. So my wife, uh, she didn't have to make the case. She just said, this is what we're gonna do. Um, and it's funny because the, the last colony was kind of like the same thing. My dad, like I did, 100,000 because of my wife and my wife was like this is the story you need to tell and my dad was like I this my dad harassed me for years and years to make the last colony since I was in college and he's been like you have to do a documentary about the status you have to do a doc and I I wish I would have saved all the text messages and the emails that I got because it became too, like an obsession to him and to the point that I was like fine I'll do it I found Mark <laughs> So, so yeah, um, I'm sorry. I just got a call. Uh, I don't oh, know. that's okay. Uh, not a problem. No problem. We're still connected. Okay. Yeah. What, what, uh, just out of curiosity, what, what side was your father on? Which, uh, did he feel that Puerto Rico should have statehood? No, my father is not a, a statehooder. Actually, my father is, are we still on? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're oh, good. Uh, I don't see you now. Oh, there, I see you now. Uh, my father is a not a statehooder. He's kind of, he's kind of like a, a sort of like a liberal commonwealther, um, but he's not even a, he's not a, a statehooder nor independentista. So it's kind of like uh, ironic uh, coming from somebody that is not pro decolonization to push me to do a documentary about decolonization. <laughs> But I think it was kind of like, it's, it's been such a long conversation with my father through the years of like how we both feel about the status that it, for him, it wasn't a matter of like making a movie. So to satisfy him, it was making a movie to satisfy the need to have this broader conversation, um, to export the conversation, to, to, to make the conversation in English, because it's a, it's a deep conversation about status. So his, his, his idea of pushing me to do it was to do something that was just going to help people understand what we talk about, what we discuss. 
It wasn't about trying to help people. It wasn't about trying to convince people for statehood for Puerto Rico or independence for Puerto Rico. It was more about, it was more about explaining when people don't understand why Puerto Rico is still in this limbo, well, this is why. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, I'm, what, what do you think that the documentary had an overall effect as far as persuading the, the audience one way or the other? I think I, I honestly believe that it has done a lot of good. Uh, it's it's kind of uh, the it, timing is everything in this situation in, in in all situations. But the documentary came out at a point in time where the topic of Puerto Rico it was the end of the Obama era and the topic of Puerto Rico was hot on the table for many reasons, and we were able to present the documentary in Congress. So we show the documentary to, to the actual Congress of the United States. We had 85 members of Congress in our the screening. And it was something that I feel like it helped a lot of congressmen understand the struggle, the, the, the question, the, even the answer to the, to the plebiscite. And I, I know your audience might not know what I'm talking about, but the, just to recap, or just to explain, The Last Colony is a documentary about Puerto Rico status, but the film covers the plebiscite that took place in 2012 in Puerto Rico, which uh, gave a very strange answer to the question of statehood for Puerto Rico, gave a mixed, uh, we Puerto Rico in 2015, that election, I mean, 2012, we sent a mixed result to Congress through that, through that election. So I think the documentary had a, had a, a real impact in explaining to Congress why those, those numbers came to be and why you know, people of Puerto Rico rejected statehood, but they didn't really, I mean, rejected Commonwealth, but they didn't really embrace statehood, nor all the other, any of the options. So again, we're stuck in limbo. That's interesting. How, how did you feel presenting that to Congress? I think that's really, that's really amazing. Yeah, another, another highlight, again, you know, uh, it was something that, you know, my parents flew out from Puerto Rico and I, I flew out from the West Coast and it was, it was personally a very big deal to me to, to, it was kind of like the, we made this film with a specific purpose to, and I, and I actually say on the film, if you could tell something to the Congress of the United States, what would you say? And the answers that the people in the audience, I mean, the people that I interview give, they're directed to Congress. So to bring the film to Congress, was to really bring full circle to the idea of the film, was, which was to educate Congress and the people of the United States about our struggles, about our intentions, about our confusions. So it was, it was the, 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 it was full circle to the, to the film. And, you know, I, I, we said it, we were like mission accomplished. That was it, you know, <laughs> after yeah. Congress. After, in fact, after after the film came out in Congress, I even started giving away the movie for free because it wasn't like it already returned the money for the investor, so nobody was losing any money, and the the mission of the film had been accomplished. So it was just like now let's you know now we got to make sure more people see it. But yeah, it was it was a, a something that I'm very proud of. I still I have a picture in my wall of the. Of that. Yeah, I actually love that. Uh that picture there that's really really clever <laughs> i think that's awesome and and uh I, have you heard the phrase before uh it's something like 
politics is downstream from culture. Yeah, yeah. But it, I, I think that's so relevant for what you did there, especially, you know, it's it's directly, you know, applicable. It's like you made this film, you know, sort of intended for the masses, but then went directly to, you know, the legislative body there, Congress, that got to watch it. And, and you know, you're educating policy and policy decisions moving forward. I think that's really a, a huge impact. Yeah, that that thank you for saying that because I it you know it it's something that I, I we were able to appreciate that and talk about that within Puerto Rico but now just doing this interview just the fact that the last co- that I'm talking about the last colony in a context that has nothing to do with Puerto Rican media or anything like that it really means that was the big that was a big doubt that everybody had when I was starting to raise financing for the last colony it was like nobody people told me not non-Puerto Ricans are never going to care. Mm-hmm. And like inside me, it was like, yeah, but if, you, if we do it right, if we tell a story the right way with, interesting, with an interesting plot, people will watch, you know? People that watch documentaries will watch. I wasn't expecting a hit like Black Panther, but I knew like within the, within the, within the documentary world, um, if done right, like any story can, can break through. So that was like the big... Uh, the big doubt that was like people knew that the last colony was going to do well with Puerto Rican audiences because it's just like, that's what we talk about. That we talk, Puerto Rico, that's, we talk politics all the time, but just having this conversation with you talk about Puerto Rican politics in a non-Puerto Rican context. It's, it's again, the, 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 this, the full circle of the film. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, part of what intrigued me, you know, to invite you on the show is I, I love the message of your TED talk. So for the audience, you know, go out, check it out on YouTube. Um, but you talk about sort of the uh, similarities and, and uh, the connection between entertainment and education. Where did yeah. you come up with that concept? My father, my father, uh, I grew up with that, with that, those ideas because my father is a, my father is a uh, pharmaceutical industry manager by profession. Uh, my father worked in the human resources his entire life in the pharmaceutical industry. However, on the side, uh, in the mid 80s, my father made two board games. And so I grew up while my father, you know, he would go to work his nine to five job. And but on the weekends, he'll be developing this board game. Uh, which were educational board games. So, and he, one of the first one was called Game of the World. And the second one was called the New World Game. And basically it's a game of like, it's kind of like Monopoly style, but uh, in terms of like it's board and, and you go around the board, but you're going around the countries in Latin America. And like in each, each country you end up, you have to, if you have to know the capital, what's their biggest, like if they sell like rice or corn, you know, so it's all like what language. So it's like all this educational stuff that my dad was uh, very emphatic when, when, when I was growing up that education and entertainment was uh, the future. So I grew up with, you know, that was, that was just something that I was in my house, like on a daily basis. And then as I evolve into a filmmaker, it was something that I, it just, it was part of my upbringing, you know, something that I, then of course I added the Spider-Man element because I, you know, I grew up with Spider-Man too. And the, you know, the, the great power comes with great responsibility idea. And, but the education entertainment, that intersection, that definitely comes straight from my father. 
That's excellent. That's excellent. I love uh, the, the Spider-Man element. <laughs> How do you I'm use just... the Spider-Man element today? <laughs> What's that? How do you use the Spider-Man element? You know, like how do, how do you use that for your projects or apply that to your different projects and what you're focusing on? Well, the Spider-Man element, I think it's like the, the, the element is with great power comes great, great responsibility. And that's something that, especially in documentary work, uh, you know, being accurate with information, being, you know, there's, it's so easy to repeat misinformation and, and miseducate people and people and it's so easy to uh confuse people with with information um so the, you, i think when you're doing a documentary or a film but especially a documentary you sort of need like a moral compass and, and you need to navigate you know what is the noise and the signal you know and you're trying to like remove the noise and, and try to say this is the this is really what is the message that that needs to be said uh, and, and this is the way that i think is the right way of saying it so when i think about power and responsibility i think about you know once you have the forum and you have the the capacity to deliver a massive message through a film and you know you're going to have distribution and you know you're going to make this film and you know people are going to see it once you have that power you have the responsibility to to make sure that the, all the information is accurate, you cannot, you cannot, re, you know, take back confusion. You know, you, so it was very important to me that we got all the facts right, and we got like just the historical facts, the numbers and dates and all that stuff. You got You have to have it right, but even to have right the opinions, to to have a balanced representation to show that opinions are opinions, and that not to confuse opinions with fact. And I think that's kind of like the 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 big guiding principle when when you're in the editing room you know it's just are we being responsible with what we're saying here if i cut it here and if i cut this person here at this point am i giving the whole interpretation of what that person was going to say or is it just going to fit my my agenda you know it's it's a it's a it's a game because sometimes when people pause, take a pause and in editing you might think oh that's a good that's a good place to cut but i might not be you know you might be saying that you might be putting the person in the you might be putting words in that person's mouth by cutting things out so there's so many variables in the, in the making of the documentary you have to take into consideration yeah i think yeah context in all the interviews that's huge how, so as a native puerto rican how did you keep your own opinions out of the film i'm sure you have some sort of ideas yeah. one way or another about statehood how did you sort of uh take yourself out of the equation by by understanding that I didn't really know much about it and by by saying to myself you know what everything that I know it's 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 jaded in some way or form because of the way that I received the, that information so I, I approached the entire project with with uh, like an open heart and, and, a, and a, you know I try to approach everybody in the same sort of like respect like and I told everybody I'm approaching this project as if I was a native from Massachusetts that just is curious about Puerto Rico. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, so my questions were coming from the, from there, uh, as opposed to a Puerto Rican that lives there and that has lived there and that that I know the politics. I wasn't trying to get anybody uh, on any tight spots. I was just trying to like imagine if I was a kid from Massachusetts watching a documentary. What would you? How would you explain your angle? 
and that's how I try to, that was kind of like my moral compass, not, not, not me, Juan, but putting myself as a, as, as somebody that has nothing to do that, does not understand this topic whatsoever. And then obviously I had to show it to a lot of people and, and friends and family and, you know, massage it, you know, and take, take into consideration, you know, things that I haven't thought about in the process of shooting. Yeah. Well, that's, that's incredible. I love that. Taking a fresh perspective on it, trying to look at it from a, from a viewer's perspective. It's huge. Uh, so what are you working on now? What's, what's next? Well, now I'm doing this, uh, this, it's not a documentary. It's a film. It's a fiction film. It's going to, it's called Satos and Sato S A T O is the name for street dogs in Puerto Rico. <clears throat> when you see a, a dog in the street in Puerto Rico, uh, we we use the term sato. There, you, you know, that's a sato, which basically means it's a, it's a mixture between mutt and stray. Um, it's kind of like the one word into two, mutt and stray. So this this new film, it's actually uh, um, written by Rosalind Sanchez, who is a big Puerto Rican actress, um, <clears throat> and she's a she. We became friends because of dogs and because of One Hundred Thousand. She wants to direct her first film, and she asked me to produce it and co-write it with her, and so we did, and we wrote this 35-minute short film, again, that's called Satos, that we're going to film in Puerto Rico next April, and it's basically a, a short film about an animal sanctuary that survived Hurricane Maria, and the sanctuary is, uh, or the film takes place four months after Hurricane Maria, and the sanctuary is... Uh, on its last leg, sort of speak. And three families through destiny come together at the sanctuary when a new storm threatens the sanctuary. And they all by chance uh, get there and help save the animals that would have otherwise perished. And we have this beautiful, happy ending after a dangerous storm. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like an uplifting story about, yes, it's about animals, but it's also about last wishes and like, uh, fertility and couples and family and all those things and like just helping each other and the will of the Puerto Rican people and we're trying to cover a lot of ground in, in, in this short film in this 35 minute film that's excellent where, where will it be available hopefully it's going to be a festival thing because it's a short film so it's going to be uh it's going to be the festival circuit uh and but I, I still you know we still don't have a website for the film we haven't shot a single frame of the film we're gonna yeah, shoot it yeah. so uh I, hopefully i'll be keeping in touch with you and let you know but i yeah. don't know exactly where but <clears throat> i'm sure the online strategy will be a, a huge part of it and we've we've already thrown out you know like thought about <clears throat> and we are considering doing a, like a vimeo premiere and so, so i don't know yet yeah. Why are we going to distribute? But it's definitely going to be a festival film first. Cool, that's awesome. Tell me, uh, what kind of or who, like who do you admire in the filmmaking space? Who who do you look up to? Who do you learn from? Who, who are your inspirations? Well, what, every time I think about that question, my my first and my most initial response is always Christopher Nolan. You know, when I, you know, I love Christopher Nolan, but, but I don't do things like Christopher, you know, he makes humongous films and, and, you know, Batman and all that. 
I just I just like his leadership style. I like that he remains calm. I like his inte intellectuality. That's what I really admire about him. You know, I, I love film in all forms, but when I think about somebody that I truly admire, like in the way they, they carry themselves, in the way they treat actors, in the way that they give interviews, in the way that they do the behind the scenes and explain, you know, it's some, like I like his approach of, of staying calm, of, of writing smart films for the masses, uh, you know, smart film, but with mass appeal. That I think he's he's a master. Um, but when I think about uh, creativity and 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 inspiration, I also look at my peers. You know, you know, just people that nobody knows about, but it's just like my friends that are also doing cool stuff. And when I see stuff in Instagram that my friends are doing or short films that are doing, you know, those are because it's really the independent work that I'm looking at right now. You know, th at this point in my life, it's really the, the stuff that it's it, I find very exciting is from from my peers, from my friends. My brother-in-law is making amazing artwork in Austin, and he's a big inspiration. And, you know, it's it's not something that it's not like saying Christopher Nolan or, or Steven Spielberg. But, you know, looking around, it's that's where inspiration is. is really at for me, like my 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 close network of friends. That's awesome. I think that's actually that's actually really important to look look sort of closer to home to find sort of some of those inspirations that could. Oh yeah, you know, when you're surrounded by by artists, and you're really supportive of their work, then you know that the magic really starts to happen. And I mean the magic of like promoting their work and like just being excited about it and like pushing people to do better work just because you're there to give more opinions about it and more reactions to it. So just just being surrounded, you know, you don't have to be surrounded by A-listers and, and like top directors, just like be surrounded by creative people that just can't stop creating. And that kind of pushes you to be creative and you can't stop creating. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just this energy that just is contagious. So I, I gotta say my brother-in-law is one of my biggest influences. That's awesome. Are there any characteristics that you notice in these, you know, creative type of people that sort of either you find sort of extra inspirational for you or is there something that sort of guides you uh, when it comes to like their personalities or certain things that they do? Well, there's the work and then there's the artist. I love the, I, like I have to love the work to, to, in, be, to be in order to be, to admire the artist. Um, so that's why I think of Christopher Nolan because I, there's, other, there's other artists that I admire their work but that I don't really admire as people. And, and vice versa. Um, <clears throat> but when I when I see Christopher Nolan, like all like when I see the work, I see the layers of of, of profound intelligence of 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 making something for again not for mass appeal. Like it, it has mass appeal, but you can rewatch it and rewatch it and keep finding things that add more to to a richer experience. And to me, when people tell me, you know, I've seen The Last Colony a couple of times or I've seen The 100,000 a couple of times because I keep finding things. That to me is like, yes, that's, you know, people are doing with my films what I have to do or what I have done for Christopher, with Christopher Nolan's film. So that's, it's kind of like that, 
it's the admiration. It's the, like I've, I've heard him talk about it in interviews and how it affected him. So it, like it, it really means a lot to me when I when I hear it and I feel the connection there. Um, one of the things that I, I admire about Christopher Nolan is an idea that he had was that when he did Memento in some interview, he once said that um, he made Memento so complicated that made people have to rewatch it and that way we make more money. And it's funny that he said that because it's kind of, I made The Last Colony kind of fast and I kept thinking in my head, well, if people didn't catch it the first time, they're just gonna have to see it a second time. And <laughs> so, so the idea or the justification of like being really fast with the film, it really came from Nolan, like from a literal quote from, from one of his uh, interviews that he had given. That's really cool, I love that. That's awesome. Uh, what, um, what are some of the new technological changes you see coming on the future of filmmaking that you think are making the biggest impact? Oh, 360 video and virtual video. It's, <clears throat> I don't think it's gonna be a new, I don't think it's gonna, I don't think 360 is gonna substitute uh, the way films are made, but I think it's really making a new uh, opening towards a new style of filmmaking. And I think that's gonna be a huge thing on by itself, complementary to two-dimensional films or you can just see in cinema. But I think that the rise of the 360 cameras, the rise of uh, virtual reality, <clears throat> those are spaces where, that are opening up for, to tell new kinds of stories. So that's, that's a definite future uh, for the film industry. I also think short storytelling is going to continue to grow, meaning the one-minute videos for Instagram, which they used to be more artistic. Now, now in Instagram you see it's just ads and like stuff like that. But it used to be, you know, Instagram used to have a more artistic sensibility to it. But still, you're seeing the rise of the Instagram channel, uh, portrait video, which is hideous in my opinion. But I think I think their portrait video is going to make it's going to have its own uh, type of creator that's going to just do portrait videos, cell phone videos, and those are going to be fine. They're not going to compete with high-end camera productions. You know, and those are avenues that are growing in, in all sorts of storytelling. So, you know, I think cinema is, is, is here to stay. I think the experience of going to a theater and gathering is as old as gathering around a fire and, and, and uh, you know, when the cavemen gather around fires and people telling stories, you know, I think that you can have humongous uh, private TVs and all that, but I think going to the cinema is something that's not going to go away anytime soon. But the evolution of that, I think there's more, there's more avenues to, to enjoy cinema and to uh, consume cinema and new, again, new kinds of cinema. So I think those are new things, and I see myself in the in the virtuality at least you know at least uh, venturing to it you know testing it out playing with it. I was never really into 3D, like the 3D fat. Yeah, I, I, out at you kind of thing. That that to me never never seemed like it was gonna work. But the 360, I think it, it's it's providing new possibilities, and the technology is getting better, and the audience acceptance is growing. So. I think that's a new space for sure. Um, YouTube 
continues to grow. Um, when I was went to college, it was like there was a thing called Atten Films, and like you know that was like the big website where you can upload video and everything was like on a dial-up, so everything looked like super pixelated and bad. But now there's YouTube and Vimeo, so those are Vimeo is also another thing. Like that, that's I was talking about the future of cinema in terms of technology and 360 and cameras and stuff like that. But the, the future of cinema in terms of distribution and what Vimeo provides and the ability to create and distribute through and charge for, for content uh, is something that video, Vimeo is really providing and helping out, you know, create, you know, uh, create more content that can get, have a return for independent film, filmmakers. So those are, so those are the trends that I think are going yeah. to keep. Um, I think in terms of editing and post-production, that's also something that I think we're going to start moving away faster and faster from computers and more post-production is going to take place in, on cell phones. You know, I'm already trying to, to get ahead of that curve and, and, and become a better cell phone editor and, and, because I, I'm sure, like as, as cell phones get faster and faster and better, you know, it's you can do. I've done so many things on my phone lately, faster than I would have done on my computer. So within Photoshop, you know, I could do it in, in apps, correct stuff like correct images in my cell phone faster than I could have done it in Photoshop in my computer, in my more powerful computer than my phone. But so I think all the rise of all those apps and editing apps and that's also going to have a huge impact on, on cinema as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I think really the distribution thing is very interesting to me because you can film a movie on your phone and publish it on YouTube. And if you get enough eyes on it, you know, you can get a lot of attention that way. Um, yeah. When you were first starting out, you know, you, you applied for that grant uh, to get funding to make your film. What are other ways that people get started? How do other people, uh, you know, what would you recommend to someone who's trying to get started in this space or even do anything as an artist and maybe they're having trouble getting traction or being able to do it professionally or full time? Well, <clears throat> the thing about that question is that I grew up in film 20 years ago with where film and video for consumers or prosumers was starting to be accessible and it was kind of like a boys club of like just buying mini dv tape and like i was the guy with a mini dv camera and all that stuff now anybody that like now in the 2019 anybody boy or girl no you know you don't have to be in any kind of like av club or anything the school or anything anybody with a phone has the ability to tell a fantastic story just with their imagination so there's no barrier of entry anymore to the film industry. You have all the tools you need. Uh, you have distribution in YouTube or Vimeo. You have the camera in your, in your pocket. You have the editing software in your pocket. So I think if you want to be a filmmaker and, and put, you know, you have to be very clear about your goals, whether if your goal is to be on theaters or to have millions of views or, or followers or to go viral or, you know, because those are all, or to tell important work for niche markets, those are all different, uh, they all require different approaches, I think. But I think the most important thing for anybody in any profession is to get started early and, and, and to practice, you know, if now, and again, going back to the technology, you can now practice on a daily basis 
which is great because you don't have to buy film. You can just shoot and edit and that's it. But then again, you have a lot more competition. So there's a lot more people doing what you're trying to do and a lot less places to get grant money because everybody there's more access, access to grants worldwide. So you're competing with more people. But I think it, the, the same applies. You have to start early and tell a story with your phone, show it to friends, then next weekend tell another story and then tell another story until it's a habit. And you have to do, have, making films has to be a habit for a filmmaker, just like writing poetry should be a habit for a poet or like painting is a habit for a painter. You don't wait for somebody to tell you to paint something. You're, you know, you just have to have this art that you have to put out there in the world. And I think success is really reserved for those people that have that, that have that unquenchable thirst to keep producing art, you know, and keep producing for filmmakers, keep producing video, videos, you know, shoot, edit, publish, shoot, edit, publish, shoot, you know, write, shoot, edit, publish, write, shoot, edit, publish every day, all the time. And that's how people notice you and momentum careers are made. You know, you can't wait for anybody to call you. You gotta be shooting and editing and putting work out there. And that's how people find you. You know, everything that I've done that you mentioned, it was, it's been around in the internet for years. But you're, you know, it's 2019 and you and I were talking about it right now. So it's just like those seats that you put out there. Everybody, all filmmakers have to be shooting and editing and publishing. So they plant those production seats so people can see what they're all about. And that's how you really build a career. That's how at some point when you do that so many times, somebody's going to call you and say, okay, now I'm going to pay you to do it for me. That's, I love that. I think that's so spot on too. You have to have that sort of unquenchable desire to, to keep producing. And I, and I like what you said about the habits too, because at the end of the day, you know, your habits are everything. If you're not, if you want to be a filmmaker, you're not spending time making film. Like it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Yeah. You can't be a, like it's, I tell everybody, you can't be a painter and just be like waiting for somebody to buy you a paint and then say like, well, I'll paint it when somebody buys it. No, you got to be painting all the time. You got to be, it has to come from you so people can see it. You know, if, if it doesn't come natural, if you have to think about stories too much, if you have to think about inspiration too much, or if you have to think about the technology too much, it's still not a habit. You know, when, when it's a habit, it's, a guitarist does not have to think too much about playing the guitar. It's just, it just becomes one with the guitar and plays it, you know, and it's the same. You have to make it a habit until, until, until you play the camera, like a, like Slash plays the guitar, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that comes down to a habit. Is that how you felt by the time you got that grant? Like it was so ingrained within filmmaking, it was so ingrained within your, your mind and just the way that you go about your life that it was just bound to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why the grant, uh, it brought tears to my eyes that I was getting money to make the movie. But like first day of production, like I wasn't nervous. I didn't have butterfly or anything because it was, it was really an, just another day of, of, of making content for me. Now I, now I had more money to do it. So it was a dream come true. So I wasn't, it wasn't like a new experience at all making that film. It was, it was just a continuation of the process. Now with a little bit more money. Yeah. So you were prepared. You had the, you had the process down. You had the, 
experience of doing it down, this is just an enhancement as opposed exactly. to like the it's whole like, thing. It's like, it's kind of like, a, you know, I'm not big into the sports analogies, but it's like, if you're, you know, you don't become a professional athlete the day you start playing on a pro team. You must have been playing since you were a kid to, to become a professional athlete, you know? And that's when you get start paying, you, you get paid, but you know, the, people start playing basketball at eight, nine, 10, and they just play for fun. They love it so much that they play it. And then by the time they're professionals, then, you know, they've been playing it for their entire life. So it's, it's not like a brand, it's not a brand new thing. So that's the same approach it's, 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 it's like a sport. It's a habit. It's like a guitar. It's, it's an instrument that you have to know and love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was watching, uh, I'm not much for sports analogies either, but I was watching uh, the Patriots, you know, from Massachusetts and someone made a comment about Tom Brady. They were like, they're like, Oh, he's probably just going to get one more win and quit and be done. I'm like, you're crazy. You know, he, the, everything in his being has led to this point where he can't stop if he wanted to, right? Like this is why he's so old still playing is that he's, he, it's so ingrained in his habits. There's like no other reality for him. Exactly. So I think that's, that's completely accurate. That's, that's awesome. And there's no retirement either. Like, so, like sometimes when I see like, or I hear people saying like, Hey, you know, you're going to save money for retirement. It's like, no, I got to save money for my next job. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not going to retire. There's, there's no retirement from, from film. There's yeah. like, I'll do film the day until the day I die. And I'm happy, happy to do, mm -hmm. like, I'm happy to say that I can do that. I'm happy to, to have achieved that. Again, going back to the grant, that was, when I cried was because I felt like for the first time it was possible to make a living out of this. And it doesn't have to be a great, like, I'm not talking about millions of dollars or like making a living of a millionaire, but just make a living, just to be, just not to have it, not having to do this on the side and just to be able to focus on this is a, is a dream come true something I will never let go. So did, did you ever work any other jobs like that were not film related? No, no, no. Like, I mean, from like in middle school, like I, my dad was like kind of like a co-owner of like a oil change car wash and I worked there for a week. But yeah. I like man, that was nothing, man. you know? And I also worked in my, my father's office in the pharmaceutical industry for a couple of months, uh, just doing like, paperwork and stuff but it wasn't like it wasn't like i went on a career path or anything it was just like a summer job but like as a professional since i have my college degree everything that i've done has been video related or film related or multimedia related in some way or form that's awesome i i love that because i feel like most people especially in the who are you know maybe more artistically leaning, they have to break out of their corporate career path to, to take on, you know, a new thing. But I love that you just, you just started from the, from the yeah, get go. Well, and it's, it's very hard to do because a lot of people feel like you, you must have heard this a thousand times. You have a lot of people think they need a plan B, but if things don't work out, like I want to be a filmmaker, but if films don't work out, I'll be a lawyer. It's like, no, you can't. You can't. No, you, no, you can't be a warrior and a doctor, you know, <laughs> so you gotta be, you gotta focus. So yeah. I, I was always like, I was, I've always, always been passionate about it. And, and that's, that's really been the, the key to my success. If anything, it's just absolute passion uh, and loving this and knowing that if like, 
I was so sure that I would have hated my life if I was if I was like a lawyer, an accountant, or a doctor. Like I, this is like I really wanted like this sort of alternative lifestyle of like making films and being creative and not re- not even knowing when my next check is gonna come and it's it's kind of stressful and all that. But it's it's so liberating and it's so it's so perfect for my personality. It's really where you know. I, I am the person that I wanted to be. That's amazing. So if you were to summarize that and give, you know, advice to maybe somebody who they're artistically leaning or they want to create film or do photography or anything like that, like what, what advice would you give to them to, to sort of get started or to dive in? I would say that dive in is the, is the right word. You have to dive in. Um, but I think, I think the most important thing is that you have to be open for everything, but you can't be, you can't be hoping to, to do, to have a plan A and plan B. And if things are not, don't work, you know, things are not going to work out. Things don't always work out, but if you love it, then you'll be happy and you will be content with your heart. There's other safer professions that don't pay that well, but if you go down that path, you will quickly realize that money and paying the bills is not really what life is all about, you know? So you just got to be true to your, to yourself. And like Steven Spielberg said, not so long ago, you got to hear the whispers in your mind because ideas and passions, they don't yell at you. They, they, they come in whispers. And like, if you have this little voice in your head that says, no, you got to do this film. You have this idea, this, you know, or this project or, or this, vision you have if that's never you you have to do it because that's never gonna away from gonna go away from your head and 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 just have to calm you know you have to answer to your to your own needs and and i think being an artist again it's not glamorous it's not always glamorous it's most of the time it's not glamorous um it's really hard and it's hard on the family you know finances and all that stuff but you have to you have to be true to yourself you know yeah absolutely I, I like that uh the Steven Spielberg quote I feel like that's sort of a universal experience people have those little whispers yeah. reminds me of uh this book The War of Art have you ever heard of that book there The Art of War it's called it's actually the the reverse it's called The War of Art and he talks about the muses and no uh, Highly recommend it. Check it out. It's by Stephen Pressfield. And it's like really tiny, really quick read, but he talks about, you know, consistency and showing up to work every single day, uh, battling the resistance. He calls it, he defines the resistance and all that. And doing that on a daily basis, you get those little whispers, those little bits of inspiration. It's coming from the muses who will, you know, give you those ideas and, and drive you, you know, towards like, you know, your creative, uh, you know, what, what you should be creating, what you should be doing with your life. Absolutely. Yeah. You gotta you gotta listen to those whispers because I think towards the end of life that's what you're gonna look back on. Mm. <laughs> I I'm always worried I was that that I was gonna regret not listening to those whispers. So I can say up to this point I have. <laughs> yeah, well that's awesome. I you know, I think what you've done is is like I, I it's really cool to see uh you know different documentaries put together that have a large impact you know i I think that's so amazing because 
you sort of publish this one thing. It's this very uh, digestible piece of content. You know, it can be, it's visual, it's audio, it's, it's right there in your face, compact into, you know, under two hours. And then you get to have a brand new opinion, a whole new take on things. And you get to portray that information in an artistic way. I think that's amazing. Do you see yourself getting back into documentary filmmaking or, or are you going to pursue more of the fiction path? In an ideal world, world, I will be doing both. I really, in an ideal world, I want to maintain my hand on both. But I, right now, say for the next five years, I wish I can transition into fiction and do a couple of fiction works, which going back to the whisper thing, have been whispering in my ear for a long, long time. So I have to get those out of the way. And then I can do nonfiction work that it's always more uh, timely, you know, or at least the type of work that I do. It's like in five years, I'll know the next documentary that I'll do because it'd be probably about things that are happening five years from now, not that haven't happened yet. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I gotta do fiction now. Like, again, going back to the whispers, I gotta do fiction now. There's, not just this film that I'm gonna do, the Satos film, the, but there's this film that I've been writing for the last 15 years, since I was in college, that is just like the, it's not even a whisper in my ears, it's like, it's yelling at me. It's, <laughs> the idea is yelling at me. But it's one of those things that I've been waiting for the right time in, in my life and the, my, the right experience and to able to raise the appropriate funding to do like a, a project that Hopefully, uh, hopefully, I will be able to raise a couple of million dollars to do um, down the line. But that's going to be, I still have to do that one to, in order to, to listen to the newer whispers, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that one is screaming at me by now. And, and I have to get it done. It's called Trap. By the way, you heard it for your first. Trap, T-R-A-P, Trap. In a few years, I will hopefully I would have finished it by by then. <laughs> I well, I wish you best of luck with that. Really, uh, you know, I think I think what you've done in the past phenomenal. Looking forward to all your work in the future here. Um, just like that, it's been it's been about an hour. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I hear the dogs whispering in the background there, so I'm sure they probably need some attention. <laughs> um, Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to, any sort of request from the audience, any piece of advice you'd like to leave for them with? Any, any final words? Uh, yes, final words. Be the change you want to see in the world. Make documentaries to amplify that change. Love it, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. 
I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed, I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.